Welcome to the Essay for FAs podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors and active investors, including retirement planning, asset allocation, and the economy. I'm your host, Gil Weinrich of Seeking Alpha, and today we're going to learn in a fun and fascinating way about economics. But first, this word from our sponsor, Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, I told you to expect fun and fascinating, and the reason I could do so confidently is that we have Seeking Alpha contributor Roger Salis on this podcast. Roger writes what I think is some of the most clear, creative, and original economic analyses. Thank you for joining me, Roger. Thank you for having me, Gil, and thank you for the kind words. Sure. So let's talk about something you've written about before, capitalism versus socialism. That debate might have seemed clearer when we were contrasting the U.S. versus the USSR, but it gets muddled when we're trying to distinguish between economic approaches within developed economies. So my question for you is to help us understand what I think the real point of the debate is, namely what and what not helps a country become more prosperous. A lot of the confusion comes in, as I wrote about in uh, one of my articles, is that a lot of countries, particularly the conservative elements, instituted things like welfare states, things like unemployment insurance, uh, workers' compensation. These were kind of intended to stabilize the economy during some of the rough ups and downs that a capitalist or market economy can have. And in the process, also kind of head off at the pass the demands of the socialists who were trying to completely overturn the society that, that, that was in place. And I think that's where we have a lot of the confusion come from. It was a lot of that Cold War acrimony between people on the left who wanted more welfare state at all costs and people at the right who wanted to cut off welfare state and even reverse it at all costs. But a welfare state and socialism are not synonymous. So how do you say Sweden stacks up according to that? Well, I mean, Sweden is an interesting country. Like it Keep in mind here, Gil, I'm, I'm neither advocating for nor advising against a, a system like Sweden. I'm, I'm just simply correcting some of the misnomers people have. It's not a socialist country. It has incubated some of the great corporations and companies in, of the world. It is a long, a long tradition of free trade with its neighbors and with the world. You know, it even has things like a two-tiered healthcare system, something that he, in, in my own country of Canada wouldn't even be considered legal. What would you say is more important to economic prosperity, the rate of taxation or how those tax dollars are spent? Well, you know, I would say yes. <laughs> it's kind of a lots of academic work has been thrown into the topic of taxation. And clearly there, there are points where taxation becomes so high, it crowds out investment, it crowds out the private sector, which is needed to pay those taxes. On the other hand, the money that is collected has to be spent well. Another great Seeking Alpha contributor, James Hanshaw, talks about how Switzerland, for example, provides its citizens with many of the uh, same benefits that Sweden does, but at a much lower tax rate. To get to your question about what makes for a, a, a prosperous economy, I believe capitalism ultimately should be about bringing out the best in people and bringing out their fullest potential. Because you ultimately need competition, you need suppliers, you need people on the demand side. If you have some swaths of the population that can speak the language fluently and, and communicate and work well in society, while other swaths can barely grunt out a McDonald's menu, you're not going to have competition. You're not going to have supply and demand being able to, to join up with each other and create a prosperous economy. 
So having education for everyone? Well, I think from a capitalist standpoint, you can make that argument. Some people may say uh, healthcare. Some argument could be made that if you have a large swath of your population that is crippled by healthcare costs, then they're not going to be able to spend on uh, consumer goods. They're not going to be able to invest in education. They're not going to be able to spend on uh, housing. All these are aspects of demand, which we need for a healthy economy. Okay, on the subject of swaths of the population, perhaps your most outstanding contribution on Seeking Alpha has been your highly original series of articles on what you call the two-economy world. The notion that the world's most developed economies have become increasingly stratified between those for whom the traditional economy is working and those for whom it is not. Roger, could you explain to our listeners what's happening today in these two economies and how this perception is felt? I'd be happy to, Gil. Basically, the crux of my argument is that in the years immediately after the Second World War, we had a very special moment in time, especially in North America. Most of Europe and uh, in large parts of Asia had been bombed off the map. Their industrial capabilities were zero. Their infrastructures were gone. So North America was in a very, a very, very special situation. I call it uh, just for fun, a golden age. You could drop out of high school and, and get a good job in manufacturing and you didn't have to worry about Japanese competition in autos, for example, or other countries producing competing products. And companies were able to pay well. They were able to the unions were able to ask for a lot and companies were able to deliver it. Similarly, as, as I mentioned in my last article, the size of government also grew in those post-war years, which meant people with bachelor's degrees in political science or, or sociology or what have you, there were new and opening jobs in the government bureaucracy and, and they were able to do well. So you had all these sectors of society that were succeeding and doing well during this very special age in the post-World War II era. But as we know, uh, the the Europeans, especially the Germans, made Herculean efforts to rebuild their economies, as did Japan with with all these countries with the help of the North Americans as well. And as their economies came online, as their industries came online, competition grew. And as government spending increased, there obviously came a point in the late 80s, early 90s when government just couldn't expand anymore. And a lot of those people who expected to find jobs like their parents or grandparents did with BAs in comparative literature or what have you, suddenly were finding that the job market was dry, as were people who were losing their jobs to competition. So you have some people say as much as 60% who are in that second economy who are not bringing in the kinds of incomes and and wages that at one time were able to uh, create a, a healthy and robust middle class, which would create that demand for, for a healthy supply and demand market economy. And while we still have lots of great jobs in, in North America, you look at the, the, the semiconductors or you know parts of the, the energy and resource sectors, you have about 40% by some people's, and I would agree with that, who, who are really constituting a healthy and robust demand-driven economy. So 60% of consumers are not part of that healthy economy. Yeah. And, and I mean, of course, 60% is a ballpark figure. And, uh, but I, I do think it's, it's a quite large number. And, and other people like Ray Dalio would, would probably agree with me, I think. Okay. Well, um, generally speaking, it's understood that GDP growth is highly dependent on consumption. So if you have a majority of the economy, whether that be 60% or 55% that are not doing that well, that has a lot of economic implications, doesn't it? Absolutely. It does. As you mentioned, uh, uh, the biggest part of GDP in, in most Western countries is consumer spending. And if that spending is as it is now being increasingly funded by debt, 
not for you know buying luxury goods or, or extraneous expenses, but just to get by. That that's a big big problem. Okay, well, you could help me classify whether it's extraneous or a necessary expense. College <laughs> degrees, the amount of college debt exceeds revolving consumer debt, credit card yes, debt. Yes, you're right. Um, wow. Well, you know, again, the answer is yes and no. You know, I think there's hope and I think that there's cause for pessimism. As we've seen in the economy, there's tremendous demand for certain skilled occupations, particularly uh, skilled tradespeople. There's tremendous demand for for people in the maths and sciences, particularly engineering. So in, in, in many cases, I would say education is a good thing. And I would just like to also say that education, I think we use the term too loosely. Maybe training would be better. I mean, is becoming a journeyman electrician really an education? When I think of education, I think of some guy with a beard and a pipe, you know, wandering through an ivy-covered hall contemplating the nature of reality. Things like uh, trades training, mathematics, uh, engineering, things like that, I, I think are, are a great hope. And, and, and an education in these or training in these areas is great for young people. On the other hand, as has been shown, and I wrote about it recently, a lot of degrees aren't doing well. Graduates of fine arts have a higher unemployment rate, believe it or not, than high school dropouts. You think of not only your odds of getting work with one of these degrees are low, but if you do find work, finding good paying work is also very unlikely. And then you have to add on to that whatever you spent on your degree is is going to be probably debt that you're going to be paying off for years, in addition to the opportunity cost that you spent in school when you could have been working. So what do these high levels of household debt, whatever their sources be, college debt or consumer debt, what do they imply for the well, economy? Well, for one thing, like, like we were talking about before, it, it implies that the consumer is not healthy. They're borrowing money in a lot of cases to buy things that they should be buying out of their salaries. In other ways, it also means these are going to be people who are saddled with uh, increasing uh, debt servicing costs, and these are going to prevent normal kinds of supply and demand transactions to be taking place in an economy that uh, depends on that. We were talking about how consumer spending is a part of G- GDP, and increasingly, people are less able to spend money on cars and, and furniture and things like that unless they're going heavily into debt. Well, in Canada, for example, 32% of citizens 45 to 64 years of age have no money saved for retirement. None. I mean, we're not talking millennials here. We're not talking about people in their 20s. We're talking about people who are 45 to 64 and they have no money saved. And there's similar numbers in the United States. Almost half have fewer than $10,000 saved for retirement. That implies a retirement crisis. So either a lot of people are going to have to stop spending and start saving very soon, (laughs) or like you say, we are going to have a retirement crisis. And if they do stop spending and start saving, what is that going to do to GDP, given how dependent it is on consumer spending? Do you foresee a new economic crisis at some point, something on the order of the global financial crisis we had a well, decade you know, ago? Well, that's, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I look at the state of consumers' balance sheets. I look at the amount of corporate debt that's been going on for the last 10 years. And I look at the state of government debt, and I just can't see any way around it. 
There's also that possibility of a black swan, something that none of us sees coming. Given the disturbing trends we've discussed, let's hope that the, the swan that comes is going to be a, a, a happy, good swan that brings unexpected good news. But in the meantime, are there some policy prescriptions that could help correct today's economic uh, drift? I think there are. Just as one example, I mean, I think education needs to be overhauled. Too many kids are coming out of university or not just university, but even just grade school, not being able to speak the language properly, not not knowing maths and sciences like they should. The problem with overhauling education is, unfortunately, that's something that's going to take 10 to 20 years to bear fruit. I don't know about you, but I don't know of any politician that's going to take on a controversial plan of action for an idea that's not going to bear fruit within, within his or her uh, reign. Young people need to be better educated with not only in, in, in things that can help them find employment, like I just discussed, but also in things like finance. You know, how, how many young people get out of school even understand how, you know, really how compound interest works or, or, or the implications of taking on excessive debt or how, how the interest rate relates to their day-to-day lives? Just to end this on a kind of more upbeat note, is there one positive development, maybe even where you come from in Alberta, Canada? Is there something that you've seen that offers some kind of broad hope for, well, uh, for current know, trends? I am seeing, and, and I think it is a cause for hope, I am seeing more young people these days, maybe not large numbers, but more than you used to see, just saying to heck with university and to heck with that degree in uh, you know metaphysics. And I'm going to maybe look towards becoming a millwright or a, an electrician or, or, or something practical that's going to teach them skills that they'll have for a lifetime and, and will be able to provide good livings for them for a lifetime. Economics is really the study of how one allocates resources, be they societal or personal resources. And I feel that in speaking with you, just as I feel in reading your articles, that I'm actually learning real economics and not theoretical stuff that doesn't really apply. So I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners. Thanks to everybody for listening. You can contact me at gill at seekingalpha.com if you have feedback or requests. And make sure to subscribe wherever you get podcasts. This is Seeking Alpha's Gil Weinrich, and our podcast was sponsored by Oppenheimer Funds. There are big investment opportunities beyond our borders. Megatrends is a new podcast from Oppenheimer Funds that explores the trends reshaping the global economy. I'm your host, Manita Huja. Subscribe to Megatrends now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.